It's John's Gospel, chapter 1. You can find it on page 1063 of your Bibles. And it's beginning at uh, verse 10. John chapter 1, verse 10. This is speaking of Jesus. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. This is the word of the Lord. If you were here last week, you'll, you'll know that uh, we looked at uh, the doctrine of justification. And this week we're looking at adoption. Two great Christian themes. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The purpose of this is that I hope it will help us sustain a lifelong discipleship with joy, security and appreciation. Conservative evangelicals or classical evangelicals, those of the reformed tradition, are sometimes criticised for being rather cool, rather cerebral. Conversely, those of a more pietistical event are prone more to emotionalism. Now, the danger for the pietist is that subjective experience can just drift into mysticism. But the danger for the reformed, if you know your history, is that it can degenerate into legalism and eventually into Unitarianism, one God but no divine Jesus. Now, the devil doesn't mind which route we go down because either way we end up with a Christianity of our own making, which, of course, is not the real thing. It's happened before. Try looking at New England after the 18th century revival. By the 19th century, it was stuffed full of Unitarian chapels. But it should not, and it need not be like that. The antidote, I believe, is the Christian doctrine of adoption. Let's take a moment to think about the plan of salvation. When someone is converted, when the regenerating spirit of God has provoked a response from the otherwise unbelieving sinner, two things take place simultaneously. We are justified and we are adopted. To be justified means to be forgiven by God for your past sins and his acceptance of you for the future. To be adopted means to be picked up as an abandoned orphan and placed in a new family with God as your father and with other Christians as your brothers and sisters. We all know recently that Carl Beach made false claims specifically against 12 people, including former members of parliament, the former Home Secretary, the former Prime Minister, the former Chief of the Defence Staff, the former director of MI5 and MI6. Beach falsely claimed that he was abused at a number of places 
and that that group also murdered three children. Well, as we know, on the 22nd of July this year, Beach was found guilty of 12 counts of perverting the course of justice and one of fraud regarding these allegations. And then he was sentenced to 18 years in prison. People like Lord Bramwell, the former chief of the defence staff, have had these false allegations hanging over them for years, even though they were never charged nor arrested before justice eventually triumphed. You could say, in the end, as far as these false allegations were concerned, he and the others were justified. Or think of one of those tragic TV adverts or AIDS posters of a little seven-year-old African boy orphaned by HIV. Parents dead, siblings dead, alone, isolated, no biological continuity, utterly alone. Now God in the Old Testament has a particular soft spot for orphans. They are physically and emotionally the most vulnerable members of society. What little boys like that need is a new family. He needs to acquire a new dad and mum, a new sister, a new brother, a new identity. And with its security and intimacy, he needs to be adopted. Both of these real-life situations are illustrations of justification and adoption. And without too much effort, you can apply them to Christian conversion. Being declared right with God and welcomed into his family. Which, though, is the higher privilege? If you look at the bookshelves of any theological college library, you could be forgiven for thinking that it is justification, because you will find thousands of books on that, whereas you'll probably find only a handful on the doctrine of adoption. Now, it's not surprising. After all, justification was the clarion call of the Reformation triggered off by Martin Luther. But if you think carefully about this, you'll realise why adoption is, in fact, the highest privilege the gospel offers, because of the rich relationship with God that is involved. Dr. Jim Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, is especially illuminating on this may well be because he has three adopted daughters of his own. He points out that justification is the primary and fundamental blessing, but that adoption is the highest blessing. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary, our first spiritual need, the need of forgiveness of sins. It's also the fundamental blessing because, it, because from it, everything else that goes with salvation assumes it and rests on it, including adoption. It's foundational. But adoption is the highest blessing because it provides a secure, intimate, developing relationship. So let's compare the two. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law, viewing God as judge. Let me repeat it. Justification is a forensic idea. That means it's connected with the law courts. 
It's conceived in terms of law, viewing God as judge. In justification, God declares to penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve because Jesus Christ has been their substitute and sacrificed himself for them. He tasted death in their place on the cross. To be acquitted of sin and to receive peace with God is great. But justification doesn't imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. You could theoretically have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God at all. Now compare that with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and makes us his children and heirs. Closeness, affection and generosity are all at the heart of that relationship. Packer says, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. So what's the cash value of this doctrine? How can adoption help us understand our new relationship and live out our new life? Well, three at least. There are probably many more. The first is identity. Who am I? The second is Adoption should be our controlling thought. And thirdly, intimacy. So first, identity. Who am I? When our first child was born, Anna, it was a wonderful new experience in my life to become a father, a dad for the first time. But for me, it was much more than that because Anna was the very first human being who I knew I was biologically related to. There was for me somebody in the biological chain that I was connected to and who I knew. I have no idea who my biological parents are. I have no idea whether I have any half-siblings at all. But I now knew that I had a biological child. I might not know where I was from or whether there were any or are any others along with me, but I knew now that someone was stemming from me. Now, I wouldn't want to overstate this, but I think adopted children do wonder where they're from. And they do have some sense of being dropped out of the sky and plonked down at some date in history without any personal context at all. There is no point, from my perspective, to do any family tree research. Because even if I was related to Sir John Hawkins... The Elizabethan pirate, initiator of the slave trade, who, who with Drake did at least defeat the um, Spanish Armada. It would be total fiction. Now, it isn't really a problem, partly because your adoptive parents make up a substantial amount. But I think that if, as in my case, you become a Christian very young then God, your heavenly Father, makes up for whatever the best parents, whether they're biological or adoptive, are unable to make up. He provides you with an identity in eternity. 
He is ultimately the one who has created you. He is your heavenly Father. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Or Galatians 4, 5. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that they might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. So he looks after us as the best dad in the world would do. And he explains why things go wrong and what he's doing about them. Furthermore, you can look forward to a great inheritance in the life to come. Now I'm sure that back to that little African boy that I mentioned earlier... If he does eventually get adopted, I'm sure that having a bit of paper from the courts providing a legal basis for his change in parentage and identity will be reassuring. However, what he's really going to do is immerse himself and enjoy his new parents and new family. It will be the new personal relationship, albeit founded on the changed legal status, that will control the way he thinks about his life. So identity. The second, for the Christian, our controlling thought, the normal way we see ourselves, is as a child of our Heavenly Father. Just as Jesus always thought of himself as Son of God in a unique sense, so he always thought of his followers as children of the same Heavenly Father, and members of the divine family. Early in his ministry, he came out with Mark 3.35, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. After the resurrection, he called his disciples brothers, Matthew 28. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me, as they did. In fact, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount presupposes divine adoption as the basis of its teaching. It's the basis for the way in which we behave. The sermon doesn't lay down um, the basis of our relationship in the form of legal statutes like Acts of Parliament. Rather, what it does is give concrete, imaginative examples which convey general principles, which can then be used to apply in other situations. It's just like the way most of us convey the family ethos to our children. We give a few examples and they pick up the general drift. So, adoption in the Sermon on the Mount is the basis for how we are to behave. So we are to imitate our Father, Matthew 5.45, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Or 5.48, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are, in other words, to adopt the family likeness. After all, human beings were made in his image and although we inherit a marred image, being a Christian is about restoring that image. 
We are to glorify the Father. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's good for children to be proud of their fathers, so they will want to behave in public at least in a way that brings credit to them. A child of God will also want to please his father. Matthew 6 is full of this line. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And adoption in the Sermon on the Mount is also the basis for the way we approach God, our Father, in prayer. We are not meant to approach him mechanically, Matthew 6, 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Our prayer is rather to be free and bold. Ask and it will be given you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. How much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask it? Not that we get what we want and God gives us what he thinks we need. Remember the Apostle Paul with his thorn in the flesh, which he would have loved to have had removed, but God knew best and it wasn't. Maybe for somebody of Paul's ability, it was a reminder to keep him humble. Adoption in the Sermon on the Mount is the basis for a life of faith. All Christians are called to a life of faith. We trust God for what we can see ahead and what we can't see ahead. For those first disciples, they forfeited a measure of security and prosperity, which they could have otherwise expected to enjoy. And to them, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. If not life, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Of course they worked and of course they used their talents to the full. But having done that, their Heavenly Father provided as he does today. Mark ten twenty nine. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. But I think, finally, knowing that we are adopted helps us in another area. Take intimacy, for example, which according to the beautiful cause, that's C-O-R-R-S, you know, the girl band with the boy who sort of sits in the background. And um, everybody is searching for intimacy. We have a society... Uh, great proximity to one another. We live very close together, but without intimacy. Our neighbours can be our strangers. But we long for intimacy with God, and we know that we should have it. The Holy Spirit is the one who directed us to Jesus Christ. He convinced us of his truth. He convicted us of our sins. He converted or turned us to Christ. And he has then carried on transforming us by living 
within us to make us like Christ. As we have embarked upon that life, we have enjoyed assurance, peace, and feel invigorated. We feel on the ball as a Christian. But at other times, we feel pretty deflated. Enervation, I think it is called. Lacking in vigour. How do we bridge the gap? Well, there are a whole lot of tempting shortcuts which may not last very long. But might I suggest, though, that we focus on the fact that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption, whose task is to enable us to more and more help us understand our privileged and personal position as children of God and to lead us deeper into that appreciation, that sense of identity that we derive from it. You see, not only is adoption the thought unifying the New Testament view of the Christian life, Adoption is also the key thought for integrating all the New Testament has to say in regard to his ministry to us as Christians. He makes and keeps us conscious that we are God's children by free grace through Jesus Christ and he gives us faith, assurance, joy and vigour. He moves us to look at God our Father, showing towards him a respectful boldness and unlimited trust that's natural from children who are secure in their father's love. He impels us to act up to our position as children of God, to show the family likeness, to conform to Christ, furthering the family welfare, to love the brethren, maintain the family honour, to seek God's glory. This is all the work of sanctification. So see ourselves first and foremost as children of God and the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption, reinforcing that understanding. And I think the gap between our status before God and our experience with him will narrow considerably. Let us pray. To those who received him into their lives as Lord, who believed or trust in him for their salvation, he gave the right to become children of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to reflect once again on the fact that we are adopted children, that we are once spiritual orphans, spiritually isolated in this world, but you have drawn us to yourself and adopted us into your family. And we are immensely grateful for that sense of uh, identity and intimacy and security. May we appreciate it more and more. And if we have not yet realised that uh, the status of spiritual orphan is not as we're meant to be, may we open up our uh, hearts and minds to receive you as our Heavenly Father. And then, Heavenly Father, may we all live up to being identified with you and try to reflect the family likeness better and to bring bring credit to you through our lives. Amen.